Welcome and thanks for joining me for this episode of Understanding Business. This is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station, and I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Well, today I want to share with you an interview that I conducted of Matt Roloff. Now, most of you know Matt Roloff from the hit TLC reality show, Little People, Big World. And for those of you who are fans of the show, you'll know Matt as an actor, an author, farmer, entrepreneur, and motivational speaker. Now, I had a chance to sit down with Matt and ask him questions about his personal life, his business life, and what has allowed him to achieve the success that he has, especially in the face of what appears to be, to most of us, adversity. And that's what we talk about in the interview today. We talk about overcoming adversity in life and business, and we talk about how to develop your dream into a successful business, because that's what Matt did. He had a dream, and he turned that into a successful business. We also talk about self-motivation, the importance of big-picture thinking, because if you know the show, you'll know Matt is a big-picture thinker, and the importance of moving beyond mistakes and challenges. So um, I encourage you to listen to the whole thing, because there's a really good amount of information that that you know Matt and I discuss and really is enlightening and gives a lot, I think, of insight into what makes Matt Roloff tick. So it's uh, something that you should listen to all the way through. But before we get to the interview, I want to just talk to you for one second about something that I think is pretty important. Now, we all know or have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. And, um, you know, it's abbreviated as PTSD. You might have heard it that way. But we also know that a lot of veterans, especially those who have seen combat, come back and they suffer terribly from PTSD. And a lot of people will kind of, you know, brush it off, uh, especially those who've never been in the military or in a combat situation. And while I myself have not been in the military or in combat, I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends who have, and it really is something that's real. I mean, they really, really need help to overcome this PTSD, and it's it's devastating for some people, uh, especially those who have seen, you know, really horrific or hard things happen to them while they're in combat. And I think it's something that we all need to be aware of. And so, you know, what I want to talk about for a second is this petition that's currently floating around, and it involves asking the Postmaster General and Congress to create a new fundraising stamp called Stamp Out PTSD to Honor Veterans. And, you know, I I want to read you just for a second what it says on the website, because I think it's kind of important. In July of this year, 56 members of Congress wrote to the U.S. Postmaster a letter asking her to support a new fundraising stamp to help veterans. The Postal Service wrote back declining to take action, saying that they were afraid a new stamp would hurt sales on existing semi-postals. The USPS should be a part of a solution to help our nation's heroes with PTSD. I don't believe that they know how much public support there is for this project And that's why we're requesting your help. In addition to Congress, many cities and towns across our great land have added their consent through written resolutions and proclamations. Governors and mayors have written letters of support, and thousands of Americans have added their names to Garland Denny's petition at www. 
veteranspetition.com, and that's the website I want to talk to you about for a second. I would encourage all of you to go to veteranspetition.com and add your name to this petition. This is a really, really important thing. You know, the military, those men and women that serve to protect our country, that come back and they have serious, you know, um, issues with PTSD, they need help. And I think that one way to allow for funding for that help is through this um, program of, of petitioning for stamps to be made. And I don't really understand why the USPS wouldn't just do this as a matter of course. Uh, I mean, since it is for the soldiers, I, I it just I don't understand that. But in any event, what I would encourage you all to do is to go to veteranspetition.com, just enter your name, and let the USPS know that it's important for you to support, or it's important to you to support our troops and, um, and to help find ways to help those returning soldiers who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. So I want to thank you personally for that. And uh, again, that website is veteranspetition.com. All right, now let's get into the interview. Matt, I want to welcome you to the show, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time out today to be on the program and to talk about your life and business experiences. You're welcome, Peter. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so you know, most of, of our listeners, they're going to know you from Little People, Big World, um, but there's an overwhelming majority of people, especially in business, who I've, I've spoken to who say, I don't watch television. So could you introduce yourself for those people that are not familiar with the show and, and give us a little bit of background about you before we get into the, the topics? Well, uh, let's see. We've been doing that show for it. It is, in fact, a little. We call, we describe it as a little out of the way show, and we think uh, that it's been going on for ten years, three hundred episodes plus, and still still doing more each year. We're still working on the epi- number of episodes for this coming year, and they're actually look, looking out four years in advance. So they're they're planning on this show going on for a while. But it is a little out of the way show, and when we go through an airport, I, I estimate about fifty percent of the people. Um, know who we are, seem to catch eye contact and acknowledge us in some way that they know me or my wife or someone in the family. But there are the other 50% of people that, uh, you know, just don't watch enough TV to be to know this show. There's a lot of cable channels out there. TLC is kind of buried up in the higher numbers, and some people just haven't, haven't been able to see the show for one reason or another. And uh, those are actually the funnest people to talk to, people that aren't aware of the show. You get on the airplane and uh, began discussing. They say, "Well, what do you do?" And then you, I kind of smile because I know they don't know the show, which is which is great. That leads to a more interesting conversation. Um, and then usually by the end of the conversation, something comes out, whether it's another uh, passenger on the airplane walking by the aisle and saying, "Saying, can I take a picture?" And your your seatmate going, "Why do you want a picture of you?" And then you can explain, uh, you know, that you also do a television show. Or, or whether it's just something that comes up in conversation. But some people know the show, some people don't, um, and, and that's just perfect for us. It gives us a chance to have some notoriety out there and, and take advantage of that fact, but also be able to walk around with some anonymously. So for those people that don't watch the show and they don't know who you are, can you talk a little bit about yourself and your background and explain um, you know, who you are? 
because you know they're like you said, they're, you you got about fifty percent of the people out there that have never heard of the show or they've heard of it but haven't watched it. Uh, talk a little bit about yourself for a second. Okay, I can do. Uh, let's see. Way before the show started, the show's actually kind of a new phase in our life. So way before the show started, I was selling, building and selling software uh, systems into high tech companies, and joined a company up here in Oregon called Frequent. About shortly after I got married, we got my wife and I. Uh, my wife's a little person, and myself, and we got married um, 1987, I think it was. And we moved the family to Oregon so that we could build a big playground. I always had a propensity towards building elaborate play structures. So we moved here. I was selling software, doing quite well, and traveling around the country by day, but having plenty of time off between my sales cycles um, to uh, endeavor in the backyard to make things like tree houses and pirate ships and castles and uh, at one point, the local newspaper caught wind of that, did a little article, and that led to a book that I published in 1999, an autobiography called Against Tall Odds, that was essentially about about me being a little person, having half my family being a little person, but it's time we had four kids, and my wife was raising them, she's little, and they, they liked that story, and that's when these reality television shows came through, and where the reality television people kind of read newspapers from all across the local towns all across the country. They have people hired that do nothing but read local newspapers from around the country. And they say, hey, this story looks interesting. So they sent a camera crew up to to um, just, you know, follow us for a day with the little, little mini handheld cameras, and they liked what they saw. Long story short, they asked us if they could, you know, help educate dwarfism by just following us around for a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of weeks has turned into a couple of years, which which has been fun, and we've enjoyed it, and we've had tremendous opportunity come from it, and an ability to you know talk, you know, be able to educate thousands and thousands of people about dwarfism. We think the notion that people go out on the street and tease tease little people as being midgets has really faded away. It, the show has had a large effect because we've driven that fact home that little people deserve respect and are humans and. There are, you know, proper terminologies to deal with people that look different than you do, and and using those ter- terminologies are, are terms of, of endearment. And and if you are in the know and if you're knowledgeable and, and you know, ed- educate yourself, and then you can call people, you know, by labels if you have to use a label at all. You know, mostly call them by their name. Um, so we we feel like we've made a lot of progress uh, educating and. Uh, Educating the world. This show goes all over the country and all over the planet because it's distributed by Discovery. Um, yeah, little people, big world about the Roloff family. Living up here on a pumpkin farm, and we fight and we argue, and we sometimes keep a clean house, and sometimes we keep a messy house, and we <laughs> go on vacation and get along sometimes and don't get along sometimes. And we're just pretty real and just hanging out there, whatever's going on in our life. They try to capture and turn it into a story that you got, uh, the audience would enjoy. Right. Well, you know, what you said is so true as far as bringing awareness to dwarfism. I mean, when when you and I were kids, it was a different world. And, you know, people did not see little little people or people who were different the way they do now. I mean, my kids have grown up. They watch the show and they have an appreciation for the fact that everybody is a person with differences. No different, you know, whether you're tall, short, fat, skinny. And I think that the show has had a great impact on that. And, uh, you know, 
just the whole idea of bullying in general. When I was a kid, you know, you'd get a bully on a playground that would take your sandwich, and that's what you thought bullying was. And now it's it's kind of developed into this this legal, um, you know, very confusing and uh, serious situation. So I think the show has done a great job for bringing awareness. Um, and you know, it's got to be tough. I mean, I, I can't imagine having people invade your life like that and showing the good, the bad. Um, so I give you a lot of credit for doing it. I don't know how you how you do it, you know, because even well, with the opportunity, def- it's got to be tough. There's def- definitely been times when we wanted to throw in the towel and kick all the cameras out where it was rough, you know, and it's like, man, we can't do this anymore. And then there's other times where we really enjoy it. And those, you know, each of the kids and the family have taken a turn uh, feeling like, ah, uh, this is enough. You know, I, I'm going through my you know, adolescence and struggling with this and struggling with my grades or struggling with my friends and I don't want to I don't want that covered on T V. So there's times when the kids don't want that's that's the stuff that they want to capture the most in reality mode, you know, they want to capture that's the stuff that's interesting to to the fans, the struggles, the difficulties in life, the things that come up, the adversity, the things that come up that aren't aren't uh, the way you want it to go, you know, and we've been We've been trained or conditioned over the years to, you know, regroup and think about it and really push ourselves to share the, the stories that aren't so fun to share and aren't as comfortable um, just as much as the ones that are enjoyable. Well, you know, the, the thing that is um, depicted on the show, aside from the reality element of it and that sort of, uh, you know, excitement that people get from seeing people fight and, and that's just the way we are as a society, but if you look beyond that, you know, you can see you as a father and as a business person, and um, I think that you you know you're a very interesting guy because you have not had uh, everything handed to you in your life. You've had adversity and struggles, and if you go back and you know anything about you know your life from what you talk about on the show and in your books, you know you've had struggles and you've gotten to a place where you are considered by many people to be a very successful entrepreneur. And business person, um, talk a little bit, if you would, about the struggles that you've had in your life getting to the point where you are today. Because I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, sometimes struggles uh, make people just want to give up and, 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 you know, shut down. Well, you know, that's one of my favorite speech topics when I go around and I talk. I talk a lot about pre-show um, diverse, uh, not just diversity, but resiliency is one of my favorite speech topics. And I talk about resiliency being a muscle. When you get beat down, if you can stand back up and walk forward and keep, keep going and get beat down again, and you get a flat tire, you miss an airplane, and it seems like the world is stacked against you, and you break a foot, and you, and you have a physical complication in your health uh, profile. But if you can just keep on putting one foot in front of the other and marching forward with joy and and happiness and, and rejoicing uh, that, you know, being thankful for the things that are going well, um, that builds up that muscle of diversity, uh, of uh, resiliency. And the stronger you can make that muscle, the more you can plow through the really nasty times in your life. So my childhood, way before the show started, I, I really like this question, um, Pete, because I think a lot of people feel like all my success has come strictly from the day the show came over which right. was, uh, you know, sometime in 2004 or something like that. Um, well, before 2004, you know, we owned our big farm and had all our big play structures, our treehouse and our 
and our thing. And that, that resulted from my successful software career um, and other ventures that we were involved in. But when I was a child, I was put in the hospital for months and months at a time, and, and they put you in, and you didn't get visitors. and It was like being in a little prison. And I had really, really painful operations, and I think I've got 12 or 14 scars up and down my leg. And I used to be put in these big tractions where they would crank on the thing and stretch me out to try to make me taller and straighter. And uh, very painful and very uh, not a good time in my life. But I, I was always still, you know, despite all that, a cheery, cheery uh, guy with a great disposition and, and um, always building things in the hospital, you know, asking for Legos and and things that would be brought that would, you know, help help me keep my mind active and busy uh, in between some of these um, procedures that were uh, not, not comfortable. We played a lot of chess. And a lot of that chess, a lot of those board games, the nurses used to come in and mess them all up and destroy them. Oh, time to go to bed and destroy our game. And we were so disappointed. We were in tears. But those games and, and the ability to, you know, let go of, of it didn't go the way we wanted because the nurses stopped the game. And just when we were winning... All those were training grounds to have a spirit that has served me real well in my professional era because, you know, everybody knows, like in sales, for example, there's a lot of rejection and a lot of uh, being sent back to the drawing board and, and what have you. And those all build up that muscle that I talked about, that muscle of resiliency. And so I think some of the adversity that came into my life at an early age um, I was able to somehow see the good in it and not let it drive me into complete uh, death, despair and depression, but instead to convert that energy into, oh, yeah, I'm building resiliency. I'm getting stronger. I'm, I'm, banking, I'm banking the lessons of life that are going to help me to uh, do more later in life. And I, I believe God awarded me with, um, with just that. You know, he's a, he sank me and awarded me. For not being a whiny baby um, and not crying and feeling sorry for myself, but then people around me, they seem to reward uh, the fact that I, you know, yes, I can. Yes, I can. I got this done. I can do this. You know, this I've got this done. Not only encouraging myself internally, but encouraging the people around me. When, when you get to that point, when, when you're in my situation, disabled and walk on crutches and barely get out of bed and take care of yourself in the morning, but you're not only taking care of yourself, but you're cheering on other people around you to take care of themselves and to succeed in their businesses, that's when you really feel like you've, you've built your muscle up to a point where it's a, it's a valuable contributor to, uh, to society. Now, you know, you talk about something that I think is important to every business and every person because, you know, obviously you can't have business success if you don't have some personal success. Uh, you talk about what you're focusing on as you're as you're a kid, and you know you're you're going through these uh, terrible procedures, it, it's it sounds to me like what you're saying is your focus was on positive. It was on things that were moving you forward. So how important do you think it is for people to focus on the positive and the good versus oh woe is me? How important is focus in your life? Uh, absolutely. Focus on the, far, uh, the you know, the forward manifest, you know, think about what it is you want and, and essentially manifest it forward, you know, by trying to figure out what the next steps are and applying those steps. Uh, you can waste a lot of time thinking about, you know, what could have been. I mean, there's always some a cause for pause after a, a, a failure, a disappointment to kind of reflect on it. Boy, but boy, if you spend too much, more than a few minutes on that, and that 
time needs to go into manifesting your change going forward and uh, thinking about what it is that where you want to be and who you want to be and what you want to be doing and then taking the steps to do that. Um, um, and, you know, that all starts in your mind. I, I have a saying that I often say when I speak, you know, it's, um, it, it says, don't just, the original saying goes, watch your thoughts because they become your words, watch your thoughts words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because it becomes your destiny. I like to say, craft your thoughts. Like, go in and literally use your mind to craft your thoughts that will help craft your actions and that will help craft your uh, habits. You know, in other words, form your habits to be what they want. Don't just let them, you know, just, just watch them. Don't just let them come about any which way, you know, but craft them, turn them, mold them into habit because the actions will become habits. And then it gets easy from there. Once you got your habits, then, then things will become your destiny and become, in turn, become your, uh, um, you know, you, who you are. And um, so I um, talk a little bit about that and how making good decisions in your life and where to spend your time. And, you know, you, people can waste a lot of time. You mentioned you don't watch a lot of TV. I don't watch a lot of TV. You know, that's a great way to waste a lot of time if you're not watching something that's educational and productive. Right. Well, you know, I think what's important there is the fact that you are shaping your destiny, and that's what you're encouraging other people to do, as opposed to those people who believe that destiny is something that's predetermined and it's based upon luck and, oh, they have bad luck. Um, I, I mean, personally, I, I don't believe in luck. I believe in opportunity and being ready to accept that opportunity. But, um, you know, what do you tell people who say, oh, well, you were, you know, you, you're lucky. What do you, what do you respond to people who say that to you? Well, I, I say the same thing you said that, yeah, you know, okay, sure. It looks like I'm luck, but you know how much bad luck I had to go through to get to the good luck. Uh, so in other words, uh, when actually when I needed change or I needed to do something different in my life, I typically look for the for some bad luck because bad luck typically associated with shutting the doors, shutting the door, and that always gives you a new door to walk through. So um, I think of uh, bad luck as good luck. But enough people say, well, you don't have any bad luck because what should have been bad luck for you, you actually converted it in your mind to good luck, and you went immediately searching for the new doors that are coming out. And if people would not lay around and feel sorry for themselves on the bad luck and look at the good luck as, an, like you said, an opportunity a new set of doors that are going to open up, a new new way to think about your problem, um, and then you can quickly convert that into good luck, and hence the bad luck was never bad luck. It was actually right. good luck because it drove you uh, to, you know, I know a, just a million stories from people who, you know, championship skiers who careers were cut short and they weren't able to ski anymore, and that's the end of the world, but they... Um, they didn't, you know, they went on and used that as an opportunity to open up new doors, and the new doors became more exciting. Actually, my story on that was I was working for a software company flying real high, and then they downscaled. This would have been back in 2000. They downscaled, and um, and I was one of the ones that got a pink slip. It was kind of surprising. I thought, wow, you know, are they doing this because I'm a little person? And I had to take a day, a whole full day, to feel sorry for myself on that flight back home that from the East Coast. It was an East Coast company. And during that flight, I made a list of all the things that I still want to accomplish in life and still want to do instead of all the things that I was mad at and I was going right. to, you know, be angry about. 
And by the time I landed on that plane, I was so excited internally to go after all these knocking on these new doors that are doors I really wanted to. And so the, the firing by one company turned out to be the best thing in the world and led directly to the TV show that we do now, which has been a godsend in terms of educating Americans and people around the world about dwarfism, which has been one of my goals and on my bucket list from the beginning of time. So I got out of a boring office job thinking that was a disaster and bad luck. And that ended up opening up the doors almost immediately um, to new opportunities that have been far more exciting and far more productive uh, uh, and and fun. Yeah. And had you wallowed in self-pity, you know, beyond the day that it took you to process it, you might not be where you are today. And that's so important for people to understand. You know, I have a question. That's, that's, that's absolutely I've, right, Pete. I have a question for you about, um, you know, when you were – working with this company, the software company, as a salesperson. Now, you know, in the, in the business world, when you are in a service industry or selling a product, you're putting yourself on the line. You're putting yourself out there, and you cannot be uh, liked by everybody. Your product can't be liked by everybody. And so as business people, you know, we all face those challenges of rejection. Now, I hear it all the time from people who are, completely capable of going out and doing something, saying, oh, what if I get rejected? I want to talk for a second about you as a salesperson because you you are a little person, and you, here you are in a job where a lot of the sales, you get rejected right off the bat. Now, you've got you know essentially two strikes, if you will, against you. How did you muster the self-confidence to put yourself out there and to take that shot? In sales, uh, well, you're you nailed it on the head um, with uh, the rejection. I would start by saying I had a lifetime of practice of being rejected, not just from be- long before I even knew what software was. I was being rejected, not asked to be on the baseball team or the football team or the or go to the parties because of my simply because of my stature. People were afraid. Well, we can't buy him to this party. He might not be able to make it up the stairs, or he might not be fun. He might might not be able to dance. Whatever the circumstances was, or I've got got cats, he doesn't look like us. So rejection to me, just rejection on the schoolyard, um, in in the neighborhood, out on the street, um, you know, ran rapid in in my life. And so I learned to live with rejection. So when it got to be sales, it was a real natural migration for me because um, I did have confidence, and I continue to have confidence, which is what what you need. And I was also very callous towards rejection. Rejection didn't bother me. I didn't like it, so I wanted to do things and say things uh, to avoid rejection for sure, but if the inevitable rejection came, I was able to move on to the next client or, or to resolve the, the issues that were relating to the rejection in un- unbelievably quick fashion. I was put on at one time a, the, another sales team in another part of the country had gone out to this big, gigantic company. Everybody knows them. I won't mention the name, but it's a big uh, uh, electronics company. Everybody that's listening to this has been inside one, I'm sure, once in their life. But um, they had a big corporate um, software uh, project going on, and my team had gone out there and visited with them, visited with them multiple years and, and uh, for over years, and they were being told, no, 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 we're going to go with a different company. We don't really like your company. And so my guy finally said, let's get Matt out there. Let's get Matt to go out there. 
So I was sent out on a mission to have a meeting. It was tricky just to get the meeting. I had already made a decision against us go out there and just one more time see if I could open their hearts and minds to our solutions and the way that we did business and, and talk to them. And uh, so I flew out there solo and cracked those doors back open and um, with, with, you know, 100% chance of just being further rejected and more firmly being rejected. But instead I was able to, you know, stretch that door back open, get it fully open, and we ended up winning that deal a year. You know, six months later we, were the, we, were the, we had that account 100%. And so, um, and I'm sure that it was because of the, the adversity and the challenges I went through as a youngster and through my adolescence, being a little person gave me what I thought was a complete disadvantage. Every time I looked in the mirror, that's a big time disadvantage. But I was able to figure out how to, to use what I saw in the mirror and didn't like um, as something I could grow to like and use my my personality, my persuasive nature, the things that I learned naturally as being a little person, um, uh, and, and apply those skills, apply that um, um, resiliency and that and that uh, toughness, and just outthink and outsmart and get up a little earlier and just try to convince those people um, that uh, you know we did have the best product and I was the best guy to to um, be listening to at that moment and, and their and their time. So. Um, I don't know if I answered all your questions with that, but I think it gives you a general sense of it. So now what would you say to somebody who is an entrepreneur and they've been considering going out, starting a company? You know, maybe they're working for a company and now they want to branch out and they've had this idea, but they've got this fear of failure and rejection. What advice would you give to them directly? Well, you know, I always believe in everybody doing an inventory, what's called an asset inventory of themselves, you know, and really sitting down and saying, is this, am I, do I have the tools? Um, am I, what am I good at? What am I not good at? One, one thing I feel I've always been fairly good at um, is being able to assess where I need help, where I'm not skilled. I'm not good at, you know, X, Y, and Z, so I need to bring somebody in to help me with that. So I, I would always encourage people to be realistic but you know with that being said and realistic means to you know to understand that you're not the best writer copywriter marketing material uh, graphic artist or whatever it is and you need to bring in somebody to help you with your pitch you know to provide additional energy that can work with your energy um, that can create a, a bigger boom and um so I see that a lot where people uh, don't surround themselves with people that bring out the best in them and that, that create a, you know, a full picture uh, to, to, that, that allows for success. So I, I think that's number one. But if you're doing something and you want to do it, you just have to do it. You have to figure out the steps. And if the step feels too big, like jumping off the cliff, well, then you need to start thinking about how can I take this step in, in smaller steps, smaller bites, you know, maybe I don't want to jump off the cliff. Maybe what I want to do is lower myself down to the, the ledge down there with the, with the assistance of a rope, you know, and, and, and or maybe I want to get a, a you know, a, a kite, you know, and, and fly off the cliff. So you, you just have to kind of rethink the problem until you're comfortable with what you're going to do. I mean, yet does it take guts? At some point, you're going to have to make a move and you're going to have to just do what your instincts tell you to do. Um, but if if you're feeling like it's too too soon and it's too scary, maybe it isn't quite the right time. Maybe you do need to accumulate some more uh, financial backing or search. Maybe you do need to. I see people quit their good jobs all the time just 
unnecessarily when they can continue to draw that income. They just need to turn the TV off at night and spend a little more time on their new venture, maybe in the evening to get a little further along, get that first or second or third customer lined up before they, you know, quit a job or what have you. So um, entrepreneurial is obviously a beautiful thing because you, uh, um, you know, get to make your own hours and you get to build something with your own hands and create a job and enterprise by yourself, but you also have to make sacrifices, particularly when it comes to your t- own personal time um, and what you invest. I, my early career programming, I put in ungodly hours all day long. I would get up early, and sometimes I wouldn't even come home. I'd sleep in the truck in the parking lot or on the floor of my office and get a shower somewhere, you know, in that, right in the office right. bathroom or shower and put those kind of hours in that were necessary. So people need to make those sacrifices to get their endeavors uh, rolling. Yeah, I think that's so important because so many people think, oh, you know, you, you fall into things and you're lucky and you're this and you're that. But people often overlook, especially young people coming up today, the element of hard work, it seems to escape them. And I think that, you know, everybody that we have spoken to on this program and elsewhere who has developed success in their life has said one thing over and over again, and that is that it takes hard work and commitment to make anything become a success. One thing I want to touch on that you mentioned, you were talking about breaking down larger challenges into smaller steps. And, it, you know, figuratively, but in reality, viewers of the show have seen you do things like face a gigantic mountain and decide you're going to climb it. And you do it one step at a time. And I think that, you know, you can draw this, this figurative con- connection between viewers who have seen you do things on the show that other people might have, uh, you know, shied away from. The mountain's too tall. The obstacle's too big. I, I can't do it. Yet you approach it in small steps and breaking it down. I think that people can see that. So I think that that's a very important thing, a very important lesson for people to understand. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, and it takes practice to be able to do that properly. And so if you start with smaller things in life that challenges that, you know, are just outside of your comfort zone and you go out and you reach them and then you do another one and here's something that's not quite obtainable, but I think I might be able to stretch and give up a few extra hours of TV watching and accomplish this thing. You know, I just go to a class. I mean, I just signed up recently. I have no time, busy as can be. I signed up for a, a, a Microsoft Excel classes because I felt like I could be more productive so I could do spreadsheets faster. And sure enough, all these opportunities to do now that I have the skills or somewhat skills, I'm able to get down and get spreadsheets done a lot easier from a one-day investment of, of class. There's so many things you can do to enhance your skills and to give you the power um, to do more and to be more, and that's just one example. So. If you're not sure that you have the knowledge or the skills, maybe take a class or, or sit down and write. You know, it never hurts to sit down with a blank pad of paper and just write out your strategy and where you're going and what you're heading and draw a drawing that illustrates it and, and let that, that creative process guide you to your next step. Yeah, and it's never too late to learn. And I think the, the point you make with the Excel spreadsheet, the, um, the class you, you took or the seminar, I think that even if you attain a certain level of success, you've got to be able to understand that there's always going to be something that you can do better, that you don't know how to do. So the learning process for successful business people never ends. 
it's an ongoing developmental Absolutely. process. You know, I think so many, times, so many times, Matt, I Absolutely. think people think to themselves, oh, you know what, I got this degree. I, I, I don't need anything else. And I think that that's such a huge mistake because they could tap into so much more potential if they would continue to learn. And that sounds to me like that's what you do. I, I Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I learned from a mentor years ago, never stop learning. And uh, he, he said never stop building, never stop learning, never stop serving, which, you know, means never stop giving back to your community, but never stop learning, obviously, and never stop building. Just keep building, you know, until you can't build anymore. Build enterprise, build. So that, that's the productive nature in me. You know, I'm very industrious since I was a little kid, but always trying to make something um, I heard read something the other day that Steve Jobs was laying on his hospital bed on his deathbed, and he was trying to figure out how to invent a new stand to hold the iPad because he was holding his iPad was laying on his bed. He was trying, you know, and that's a classic example of a successful person. You know, he was trying to sketch out a new iPad uh, that would make it easier for people in hospital beds to hold hold his iPad, and so um, that that resonated well with me because I, I realized that I tended tend to do that as well, you know, it's just always trying to thinking of how to improve, and whether it be a product or a concept or a show or a, a scene for our show or a better pumpkin um, strand, um, no matter what I'm working on, I, I'm constantly, uh, you know, looking for ways to improve, um, improve on it. I want to talk for a second about big picture thinking, because um, for those people who know the show, Amy, your wife, seems to be more realistic, practical, and you appear to be the big picture guy. The guy that does these things, comes up with these ideas. And, um, you know, I think it's important for those people in business to have some big picture thinking in their repertoire because without the big picture thinking, you, you can't exist just on the practical. So talk for a second about, you know, do you consider yourself a big picture thinker? And, and let's talk about that for a second. I actually consider myself having the ability of, I consider myself very versatile um, is the first word that comes in, comes to mind. So my ability to go up big picture and then drill down from the big picture on what needs to be today's priorities and not get stuck up there because that's a bad place to get stuck. Um, but to be able to let your mind um, transcend from the big picture thinking to how does that translate into a task I can accomplish today, right now? You know, what phone call can I make right now that's going to support that big, you know, work in that big picture um, uh, direction um, is, a very, is a powerful thing. So big picture, absolutely. Constantly I'm going, flying up to the 50,000-foot level, looking at how this fits into the big picture, how it works, and, and that, you know, that's, I think that's something anybody's brain can be sort of trained to do, but you've got to comp- always use the big picture to calibrate everything you're doing. Is what you're doing today support, is it busy work? That's what I say in my guide. Is this busy work, or does this support the big picture? And if it doesn't support the big picture, then it, we, maybe we should re- be thinking what we're doing. So I would imagine in your life, You've had situations where, you know, you've had a big picture vision and you start doing it and you realize there's a problem. It's not working. Uh, talk about that for a second, because, you know, you started to mention that. And that's so important because so many times 
People in business will say, this is my, my goal. Here's what I want to do. Nothing's going to get in my way. And even where all the signs are kind of telling you, listen, you're barking up the wrong tree, they continue to press forward and they face ultimately failure. So talk about that for a second. Um, well, I, I can think of an example that may, maybe people can relate with, but um, because we're talking about big picture, it's so subjective on what size picture we're talking about. But our pumpkin patch, which brings in 30,000 people a year, um, for a number of years, 2010, 2012, I had a big picture plan that because we're limited on, on our parking, uh, how many parking slots, we want to get people in, we want to show them it. Uh, the, the country store, they could buy something, they want to get autographs from the family, they want to get on the hay wagon, and they want to go out and pick their pumpkin. And then we literally have an ejecture, and it's a shoot that after they weigh their pumpkin, it just sort of spits them back out in the park. Now. So the theory was, big picture theory, was we want our customers to come in and have their experience and go through blah, 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 step one, step two, step three, step four, and then back to the parking lot to get in their car and leave. And after an hour of staying here, they they would have a great experience, and we would um, have maximized the advantage of, of, of uh, that, just because our farm was small and because of the constraints we have. Well, a few years later, I started realizing that that big-picture plan was flawed in a number of ways, and we wanted to start to change, have people come in, settle in for the day, and stay the entire day. And start, so we start thinking about things like having a band that would, play at 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock, so people would wait around for that, or having different drawings where the drawings happened at, you know, 10 a.m. and noon and again at 4 o'clock. So people that would grew in the morning could stick around and see if they got their prize got drawn. So we shifted our big picture plan based on knowledge about what was going to be the most successful financial model for the business. And people staying around, if we had added food carts and added food options and we fed them and we were getting a slice of that, you know, a percentage off of that, then that would that would be a better plan. So, you know, we dealt with, figured out the parking issue, which was driving us to the big picture plan A, and figured out how we could change the big picture plan B and solve the problem. So instead of being stuck in trying to refine plan A, we oh, let's just really stop and think. I know I made this decision. I know it was my philosophy a year ago, but let's look at what that would feel like to change our minds and flip our vision completely 360s and do it the other way. And everybody in the meeting was appalled because we had spent so much time and energy working on this plan, and now we were going to flip it to a completely new plan and uh, try to solve the the issues that were involved in that. But that's the kind of um, agile thinking that has to go on in any business, regardless of the size. You have to be a flexible company that the leadership uh, and all the the, uh, lieutenants have to support the leadership change and um, be able to prove that your company, even if it's the wrong change, but that it's flexible. Because if you can flip and do a change that's wrong and all the employers can say, understand, "Ah, this is not a this is not a good idea. This company is going to turn this company in the ground, but the leadership has decided that's the change they want to make. Go along with it because then you can become part of the team that's agile and flexible and, and embraces the change that needs to go on. And then the next change that comes along, maybe it is the right thing. Maybe it is the, the secret sauce that the company needs, and you're going to be the first one to get called up to help uh, facilitate that change if you – you know, if you're open to it and you stay, uh, sun, you know, keep a sunny disposition 
uh, about being a participant in that change. Yeah, flexibility, I think, is really a factor that so many people overlook. Uh, you know, Anthony Robbins, the motivational speaker, uh, once said, he gave the example of success in business is like an airplane flight from New York to California. You know, you start off at point A and you want to get to point B, but most of the time, 90% of the time, that airplane is slightly off course and you have to consistently make adjustments to the flight. You ultimately end up where you want to go, but it's a pattern of being flexible and adjusting. So I think that people often overlook the idea of flexibility. And, you know, I, I oftentimes I'll have an idea and then, like you said, you know, we'll, we'll go with this idea and then six months or a year later I say, wait a minute, I think I can do it better. And then you've got everybody saying to you, but, but you just implemented this idea. Why is this no good anymore? And I don't think you should be afraid of flexibility and changing things. I think change in business can be good. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk for a second about uh, your, your customers. Now, you were mentioning the fact that you've got the farm. And uh, I mean, from, from people who know the show, the farm is astounding. Um, what a beautiful place. And you've got all these people now coming. Some of them are from the show, but I think that, that there are probably just as many who come not for the show, not from the show, I should say, but because of the product and services you're offering. I want to talk about how you developed a client base. Because, you know, so many people, that's a question they have. If I start a business or if I have a business, how do I brand myself and develop a client base? How important is customer service? So talk for a second, if you would, about developing a client base. Well, we try to get people that come, and I think I think we're, we largely accomplish it. It's always hard when you have a lot of people. We train our employees very, very strictly that we are in the people business. I know you think we're in the pumpkin business, but we are in the people business. And when people come out, you know, we have certain rules. We try to be generous with our refunds. We try to make it extremely affordable. There was a time when we... Somebody said, oh, let's charge for parking, but did that one year, and we realized that, you know what, charging $2 for parking, parking yeah, we make an extra $50,000 this year, but you know what, it's so nice when people can come into the pumpkin patch free, for free, and they can park for free, and they can walk down to the pumpkin patch for free and mill about. If they want to purchase some of the extra things that obviously we have a business cost associated with, a more direct cost, then, then we need to, you know, charge them for that, but make it affordable. Um, and make it a good experience. So we have very, very few people that come up and to our information booth. We have a person that's available to answer questions and things. You know, and few people that come up and complain. Most, More often than not, they come up and say, I have a wonderful time. I'll be back next year. And we are getting less and less from our fans coming um, and more and more just from people in the community that work at Intel or Nike, and they bring their little ones out, and we set up a photo op area where it has a date printed on the wall. We change it every year. And we encourage people to get, you know, their annual photo, child photo so they can, and they come up to us all the time and they say, hey, here's a picture I took back in 2009. My kid, look at he's, you know, a teenager right. now and playing basketball and you take a picture in front of the 2014 sign, you know, and we, and so we have, we, we think about things like that to help us with our, we try to analyze our demographics as best we can without, stopping people and understand, but we're constantly thinking about what is the demographic age-wise, who's enjoying the farm, what can we add. We One example is we have a little area that we originally called the, the fun zone, 
Well, now we call, we did a subtle little change we called the family plan zone. Because we realized that the plan zone was drawing in kids to pay their $8 to go have fun. But there was actually a lot of adult things in there that were fun, too. So by calling it the family plan zone, we're able now to encourage adults to go in there and play with their kids and, and to have fun with their kids. So we sort of made that subtle change, and it's financially been a real win for us because we've created an area not only not only the family feels good, the dad walks out and goes, yeah, I had a ball, I played with the kids at the slingshot, and we rode on the giant trikes, you know, afternoon. So instead of them sitting on the fence looking in, the kids having fun, they're actually in there doing right. it themselves. And, and those are little changes that, you know, come to our attention, and, and we say, let's try it. Let's try that. Let's try that. And then and then we, you know, like it and, and you know, adopt it as our standard business practice or we make changes and, and change it. So listening to the customer, it sounds to me, is extremely critical for you, listening to what they like and want instead of just pushing your agenda of this is what we're going to do. Would you agree? Right. Yeah. And, we, you know, Amy and I have several other businesses as well. We're working on a, a food product business where we're, we, Amy's cooked up some salsa options, and so we're working with some very large retailers right now to get this salsa. We had put on, we purchased up a couple of large uh, batch runs of it and sold it all out in the first couple of weeks of our pumpkin patch, and now we're busy uh, tweaking the recipe a little bit, and then based on some input we got, and going to do a couple little minor tweaks, and then we're going to do a couple big batch runs and get it out into the to the national store chain. So we're working on that business very actively. We also have a stool business. People have seen it on the show once or twice. It's a small little business. We don't feature it very often because the show doesn't tend to do things over and over again. They turn to do a storyline and, and then move on. But it's there. It ships products to hotels every single day of the week, and we have some of the parts made all over the country and assemble them and, and ship them into hotels. And so we got quite a demand. In fact, we can't keep those in stock either. I order them up and think it's going to last for three months, and the batch is gone in two months. So we, we, we're we busy running. We have a full-time guy on that job and uh, other outsourced people that do other piece, bits and pieces. And so we're excited. I'm going to be turning a lot of my attention to that business over the next couple of years. We're um, also, you know, in deep discussions with TLC to, to continue to do more shows. And, and but fortunately, we've got some older kids now that can carry some of the weight, and, and uh, they, they, they're married, so we can get point the production people to spend more time with uh, the kids and doing their storylines and a little bit less time uh, here on the farm while we can go back to work on some of these projects that have kind of been on hold while we've been sh- our shoot schedules have been so demanding. Amy's involved in her speaking, where she goes out and does motivational speaking called Living Large, and she also has her charity foundation that she works to help kids, uh, kind of an anti-bullying theme to that, and teaching kids their own self-worth so that they don't feel like they the need to bully. And um, and I have a speaking thing as well, MRE, where I go out, or in fact, I'm going to get, Amy's on the road right now, and I'm getting ready to go on the road for a couple of speeches, and hold down the fart, we hold down the fort in the meantime, so... Um, we, we stay busy, that's for sure. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, because I'm sure this is going through a lot of people's minds. How do you manage your time to handle, because a lot of people can't handle one business or project, and you have, I mean, we've seen the stools, um, you know, you got Amy Salsa. How do you manage your time to do all of these projects? That, Pete, is an excellent question, and um, I it's a constant struggle, constant place for continuous improvement. I think about my time management 
several times every single day and try to put tools in place so um, whatever online apps that I can use to track my time or just I'm very, very aware of the time. Um, tracking time is a tricky thing because it's so um, elusive. You, know, you can waste so much time. But I do think when I'm working on something and it's starting to take too long, I start I'm constantly um, reevaluating, is this task the right thing to be doing? And just because you're starting on tasks and you're getting there, there is this, there's a something to be said for focus and finishing. However, I'm one of these guys that looks at a task and halfway through it I go, wait a minute, I could finish this task in two hours or I could abandon this task because in the big picture it's not really going to put money in my pocket. And, right. I, and I do use that as a, as a gauge. Is this a revenue-driven task? Um, is this something that's going to make a customer happy and eventually make, make me more, you know, put some finances in the, in the kitty? And I want to train my employers to kind of think the same way. You know, are you working on a revenue-generating, a direct revenue-generating task or are you working on, on something else, you know, cost task, and to be sure to balance that out. And that's where you got to balance it out. You, you know, it's not like you can't maintain your equipment and work on that. You won't be able to generate money if you don't have equipment that's maintained. But if you're spending six hours maintaining a tractor when you should have just sent it to the shop and had it fixed in two hours, that, that's where I like my guys to question where our time is. And I pick up a lot of time by not doing, you know, not watching a lot of TV. Right. So, you know, it also sounds to me like you're not afraid to say, all right, there's somebody else that can do this job, and I'm going to delegate that task to them. You know, do you find delegating or finding the right person to do that job for you is important? Absolutely. In fact, we, we spend more time on that than we do on anything. Just find, you know, going through finding the right person in a job, and we're not afraid to hire people in for a project or temporary or for permanent to work on something, but you've got to have the right person on the job or, um, or, you know, or you're doomed to fail. What about those people out there that say, oh, you know, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. Um, I mean, that's, it sounds nice in theory, but what's your take on that, that, you know, philosophy of doing everything yourself? Well, um, you, you can't, you won't get very much done if you're doing it all yourself. So you either, because you've got limits, everybody's got limits. Even if you're working 14 hours a day, um, if you know, that that wouldn't tell me that your own personal life is out of balance. You're not spending enough time with your family or your friends or playing or relaxing if you're working that hard. There are periods in my life where I did do that and I did get out of balance, but then you can do it for short runs. But to do that for any kind of extended period would be suicide, in my opinion. Um, so you, you really are better off building up a skill where you can train other people. And something I'm working on, you know, bring in somebody and then do a data dump to them of what you really are after and then keep, no, don't be lazy. Don't bring somebody in, tell them what you want to do and then walk away and never, you know, you got to check back every couple of minutes at first, make sure that they're trained properly, um, and that they're motivated properly and they're compensated properly and make sure all their pieces are in place so that you can end up where that, resources you know is contributing not not being a hindrance to the to the process but i think so many people i think that saying that you said if you can't do it right then do it yourself comes from the fact that people bring in delegate they bring in somebody and then they don't spend the proper amount of time um you know bringing that person up to speed and training them into a into a valuable resource and i've done that mistake myself many a times you know 
of hire people and expect that they can just do it, and I turn my back on them and come back, and I'm disappointed in the results, and I realize it's really my fault. I could have spent a few more minutes at the beginning, um, you know, going through a few more details on how I like it done, and, you know, uh, I would have ended up with a much better uh, trained resource. Right. Matt, we're we're almost out of time, and I want to give you time to um, let people know where they can contact you. But one thing I just want to uh, mention, because I think it was uh, something that happened recently in an episode that was very telling about the way that you deal with adversity and the way that you deal with problems as they come up. And it's an episode where I guess you guys were getting ready to do a um, a parade. And you had ordered a gigantic pumpkin inflatable thing. You remember that episode? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. So on the, the pumpkin, they spell the name of the farm wrong. They spell your last name Roloff wrong. And as I'm watching this episode, I'm thinking to myself, God, how many times does this happen to somebody in business? And they throw their hands up and they say, it's ruined. It's over. It's over. And – you know, you go to a commercial break and you come back, and the solution is you guys fixed it so that it read right and that it was okay. And it doesn't seem to me, and I know it's a sh- you know the way that the show was was shot, but it doesn't seem like you missed a beat. Can you talk about that moment for a second when you know you saw the pumpkin and it spelled okay. wrong? Well, it helped to have my genius daughter Molly standing by at that time because she is uh, really, really smart. She's the smartest of the bunch, and so that was all, that was a nice advantage to have at the time. But the general concept you're describing, you know, happens all the time. Every day there's always setbacks. Everybody out there listening and in life, you know, has setbacks, and it's all about again. I use the word resiliency. You know, you have to have resiliency and say, hey, uh, okay, so this is a setback. I just missed an airplane, or I just got a flat tire on the way to my most important meeting of my life, but I can't sit here and feel sorry for myself. I have got to go into motion. What is my best option here? You know, should I get out and hitchhike? Should I start walking? Should I try to change the tire? You know, what am I going to do at an airport, you know, overnight? Well, you, you know, start to call and see if you can reschedule your meeting. Start going to action, going to motion. And um, hope doors open up, uh, you know, start looking around for those doors to open up. Don't just sit there, though, you know. I'm, if I miss an airplane, man, I'm scanning those other boards looking for other flights that I can switch to. And I'm not thinking, oh, I can't switch to a flight because I've already paid for this one. I'm thinking, I'll go out. If it's important enough, you know, I'll put it on my credit card and deal with getting my refund, you know, later, that kind of stuff. So, um, you um, you know, you have to be, you have to, that's where the big picture comes in is, is like, it's spending a little extra money more valuable than the meeting I'm going to be on. Oh, that meeting is pretty important. It could result in, you know, thousands thousands of dollars with a, with a sale. Well, then why am I going to miss it over a $300 flight, you know? And you have to make those kind of judgment calls. And we haven't talked a lot about judgment, but I think that's an important skill to, to have, in, have in your arsenal. It's just solid judgment. And that judgment you know, um, comes from, you know, everything from your DNA and up to your education and your experiences. But I do think people can work on having um, better and better judgment calls. I like to take a lot of my judgment came from early days of playing games in the hospital, you know, where you're making judgment calls on, on the chessboard or on the on the risk game or on, in Monopoly or checkers, you know. But uh, definitely having good you know, good sound, being able to calculate a lot of factors in the future, in the past, 
you know, take historical information, future information, and make a decision based on um, on the, your best, uh, you know, neuron neuron calculation. I guess. Right. Well, you know, if you would be willing, I'd like to have you back on in the future because we had a lot of questions come in during the show that we were unable to get to. Uh, so if, if it's something you're up for, perhaps in the future we can have you back on and we can talk about judgment, and then maybe you can answer some of the questions that uh, some of the listeners have for you. Okay, great. I'm sure definitely have no problem coming back on and talking, and uh, I appreciate you having me on this time, Peter, and I'll say hi to all their listeners out there, and um, I enjoyed your program, and um, and look forward to helping you out any way I can. Thank you, Matt. Matt, how can people get in touch with you. I mean, obviously, you can Google Matt Roloff, and you're all over the place, but give uh, give some contact information if people want to learn more about you or your businesses. Yeah, the best way, we have a website, uh, www.mattroloff.com, I think, takes you to our family website, and then you can get a hold of uh, my office if you're looking for speaking or looking for pumpkin um, uh, hours or, or when our pumpkin festival happens um, or just the office admin. But we have an office admin. Her name is Karen who takes a lot of calls and, and questions and tries to tries to get to them all. Sometimes it's not always easy, but it's Karen, C-A-R-Y-N, at MattRoloff.com. So C-A-R-Y-N at MattRoloff.com. She is the in-office admin. And then, but just to, the easiest thing to do, um, unless you have a real specific inquiry, is to um, look up the website and see if you can fill out the contact form for the specific uh, area of uh, interest that you have. Um, and that is the mattroloff.com or theroloffamily.com. So I think I think they both go to the same place. Got it. And we have links on utlradio.com. So if you want to go see all the sites, go there or click on the links. Matt, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out, uh, for being on the program, and, and for being willing to come back. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the interview that I conducted uh, with Matt Roloff. I think there was a ton of great information uh, that we were able to extract from him. He was very open, and I appreciate his willingness to talk to us about his experience both in life and in business. And I also want to thank all of you who have decided to take action and visit veteranspetition.com. We talked at the beginning of the show for a, a brief period of time about what's going on with the fundraising campaign and how you know veterans are looking to support other veterans who suffer from PTSD and have asked the United States Postal Service to issue a stamp called Stamp Out PTSD to honor veterans, and uh, unfortunately, the U.S. Postmaster denied or declined to help, and we are asking that all of you out there sign this petition to allow our veterans, our troops, those men and women that support our country, that provide us with the freedom, that allows us to do things like this podcast, to talk to people, to get information from them, to you know share stories, to broadcast freely, we're asking that you sign the petition at veteranspetition.com and help those veterans who have returned from active duty with or suffering from PTSD to get the help that they need. So I want to thank you in advance for that. And uh, I want to remind you that if you 
are looking for additional information about this interview or business or legal information, head on over to utlradio.com. It is the central hub for everything. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the YouTube program over on YouTube, the YouTube channel. There, there's different content on both the podcast and on YouTube. So if you're only subscribed to one, then you're missing out. Make sure you subscribe to both. If you're interested, you can also download for free our guide, the top 10 legal writing tips for non-lawyers, which is available on utlradio.com. So I would encourage you to download that free guide. It would help you whether or not you're writing to the court, to an adversary, or to the guy next door whose you know trees are growing onto your property. It'll just give you some points, some tips, some guidelines as to how to write a better legal letter. All right, that's going to do it for today. Please make sure that you share this information with your friends, your family, and colleagues, and let them know about utlradio.com, your business success, and legal information station. I'll see you next time.